listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. When I was a kid, uh, I was a very difficult young man to wake up. And so early in high school, I remember my mom, my mom would come into my room to wake me up for school. And uh, she, would, she began by, you know, gently touching my arm, Michael, wake up, wake up. She moved to shaking me, um, to throwing things at me, to pulling, you know. Uh, but eventually she found the routine of bringing a water bottle into my room and squirting me in the face to get me to wake up. Now, for some of y'all, you're like, man, that's child abuse. Man, that, that was growing up in the 90s. It, it wasn't that long ago, you know. Uh, that's before we had the internet, and that's before, I guess, we had the police. I'm not sure. But, uh, like, that was every, almost every single morning when she would come in there to wake me up, it was a water bottle. Boom. And can I just tell you that I did not like that? As someone who enjoyed their sleep... Uh, and someone who wanted to stay there in the bed because I had gone to bed probably at 2 or 3 a.m. from staying up late playing guitar uh, or listening to, uh, you know, some rock and roll or something like that. Like, I, I did not want to wake up. But, but here's the beautiful thing about it is that it worked. It worked. That wake-up call worked. Uh, and so what I want to see this morning, as I was thinking through this passage, I thought, um, how are we uh, in this, how do I relate this passage, Luke chapter 11 in these 25 or so verses to us here this morning at South Point, some 2,000 years after this was written. And I want us to see this morning that these verses are like a water bottle in the face. For us, I hope that this is a wake-up call to us who I think can often be quite asleep to the things of the spiritual realm, to the things of Christ. And so this morning, if this kind of, you're like, oh, that kind of steps on my toes a little bit, or I thought I was coming here to be encouraged or uh, to make this week, you know, have a better smile on my face. Man, that's, that's not everything that Jesus taught. And if you walk away from here thinking, I'm sure glad somebody else heard that, then you may have missed the point of Jesus teaching this morning. This is supposed to be for you and for me. And can I just say this, uh, that this past week has been tough reading this passage. Sometimes weeks are really encouraging when I read about the Lord's Prayer, and I'm just like, man, I can't wait to talk to people about this. I was hoping that David was going to do like 16 more bridges of uh, here I am to worship, and then can we just like vamp that? I, I don't want to get up here and preach this passage. It's, it's difficult, but that's where we are. So here's what I want us to see before we start. Repeat these lines after me. This comes from Psalm chapter 119. And may this be true for us this morning. Repeat this after me. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful word to me. May that be true for us this morning. So how are we Pharisees in 2022? And that's the question that I kind of want to answer this morning because we, we talk about uh, what it means to be Pharisees, and we read about them in the scriptures, and sometimes we, it, some of those things get lost in translation, and sometimes everything we do becomes Pharisaical, and sometimes nothing. And so if this is your first time in the church this morning, you're like, bro, I, I, I don't even know what a Pharisee is. We're going to talk about it. It's just a hyper-religious person who's not following Jesus, but he's following the law to try to earn God's favor. 
And, and here's where I think we are this morning. I was talking with Jeff about this earlier. And as I, I thought about us as a body specifically, so South Point, McDonough specifically, I think that the danger for us is that we have become numb to the things of eternity because we don't believe that Jesus is sufficient. So as we often, we think, man, we're not, a lot of other churches are doing way more religious, law-based things. Like, here's your long list of things to do. Make sure you check all of these things. As I was thinking through our church body this week, I thought, man, I don't, I don't think we're quite religious enough in the sense that James talks about religion, which is caring for the orphans and widows, in the sense that Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 1, where he says, make sure your life is full of righteousness, but not for the sake of other people looking at your life, but so that you can be filled with righteousness. I think we're on the other end of that spectrum. We're not trying to, hey man, y'all need to stop doing so many religious things to earn God's favor. And I would say this, God has shown us his favor so that our lives can be transformed. He has not shown us his favor in all the things that we have so that our relationship with him has become a transaction. Because often our relationship with Christ is transactional. When I need you, I'll come to you. It's like an ATM machine. Instead, my prayer for us this morning and what I want to plead with you on is that our relationship with Jesus would be transformational, not transactional. And it would hit every single part of who we are. So how are we pharisaical, I think, in 2022? The first way is, is how we see others. And often we, we think that they kind of get what they deserve. We look down on folks, maybe because of how much money they have or how much money they don't have or because they look different than us or, you know, they start uh, crying about uh, things that happened to them in the past and, and we're just like, ah, oh, well, man, we got to live in the future. But, you know, we can blame things on our past and we want you to make sure you give us credit for those things and not ask too much of me because that's just the way I was raised. So it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And so the way that we see others is, ah, well, yeah, that's just, that's just what you get. Sorry. Sorry about that, y'all. Not a whole lot of grace or compassion. I think the second way is how we see ourselves. We often want to give ourselves way more grace than we deserve, right? Or here's where I am, is I don't really need God's grace. Because why would I? I'm already pretty stinking awesome. Anybody there with me? Anybody in the awesome camp over here? Yeah, I know, I know some of y'all. You don't have to raise your hand. You're just like, I know. He knows what's, you can just tell from looking at me how awesome I am. I know. And so that's where I am. We make excuses for ourselves. We blame shift. That's me. Uh, if my wife was still here, right, she'd tell you the same exact thing. The third way that we're Pharisees this morning is this. Uh, it's how we want others to see us. We want, us to, we want to look like our lives are all put together. A lot of times the way this shows up, I think specifically to our church, is um, we become real nitpicky with things. We have more answers than we do questions. It's like, ah, oh, well, you know, I, I was actually reading and something and this translation was used. And this tra Wait, can, you, can you explain that translation? And I think from that, everything that you said was wrong based on that one. I'm like, man, can, can we just get behind the word of God and look at it and, and see how we can fall more in love with Jesus? 
Rather than saying, man, let me, let me find all the different little things because if I can find all the little negative nuances of all these tiny little things, then all of a sudden I'll be seen as smarter because I found out what's wrong rather than what's right. So that's how we want others to see us. Again, I'm in that category, by the way. <laughs> so I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir. The last way is how we want God to see us. I want God to see me as being worthy of his love. That's how me, Michael Powell, I see myself. Because why would God not want to love me? Because I've got everything together. I'm way better than somebody else. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm believing all the right theological things. I've got my, my doctrinal resume in order. I deserve God's love. Come on, God. It becomes transactional rather than transformative. So I want us to see here in this passage, Luke chapter 11, pick it up in verse number 29. We're going to see several things about religious people. These first few verses, they ask for the sign of Jonah. Now, the first thing I want us to see here is that religious people often want more than Jesus. Religious people, they want more than Jesus. So we have here Jesus talking. He says, this generation is an evil generation, in verse 29. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Let's keep going. We'll talk about that in just a second. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, they're, they're like, hey, Jesus, give us a sign. We saw this. We've seen this so far a few times in the past few chapters. Chapter 9, give us a sign. Chapter 10, they're like, Jesus, we think you're from the devil. Can you give us a sign? Right here, verse number 31, the queen of the south. In other words, this is the Gentile queen Sheba. Uh, from 1 Kings, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater, something greater, hang on to that phrase, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of whom? Of Jonah. And behold, what? Something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Here's what Jesus is saying. He's referring back to these religious folks. They would know the Old Testament really well. He's saying, look, there was this Gentile queen, Sheba. She wanted to know about God, the creator of the universe. And so she went and tried to find out about him. She went to Solomon and said, give me your wisdom. I'll believe whatever you tell me. We have not just a Gentile queen, but this pagan people that Jonah went to, right? He goes to the city of Nineveh and he preaches. And then by the end of the, the book of Jonah in chapter 4, he's preaching in the pagan city, turns and repents. And Jesus is like, look at these folks. These are the most non-religious people in the ends of the earth, and they turned to me. Their sign was the wisdom of Solomon. Their sign was the preaching of Jonah. And But look what Jesus says here. He says, he uses this term, this generation. And we see it all throughout this passage. He's speaking here specifically to this religious people. And he says, but this generation, you're the ones who I'm going to come. We saw this last week, right? I'm going to come and heal demonic, mute people. And you're going to say that I'm of the devil? And now you're asking me for a sign? <laughs> How ironic. I'm casting out demons, and you want a deified sign that I'm the son of God. He's like, what's wrong with you? Look at the queen of Sheba. Look at the pagans from Nineveh. They know more about me than even you do. He says there's something greater here. He says, he says it twice. 
He says, these folks, they didn't even have this something greater. All they had was this, the wisdom of Solomon. All they had was the preaching of Jonah. But you have this. You have the sign of Jonah, which Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how many days? Three. Jesus was in the grave for how many nights? Three. After three days, Jonah was vomited up onto the beach. But that's the sign of Jonah. But then we get the sign of Jesus. And after three days, he came back up out of the grave, alive, fully alive. And so Jesus is saying, they had Solomon, they had Jonah, and you have me. And I'm going to be raised to life. And you are still going to reject me in all of your religion. What it wants to see right here is that religious people, they want more than Jesus. Give us a sign. Give us something else. But Jesus is saying here, Take the scriptures, even the Old Testament scriptures. I am the fulfillment. I am the resurrection and the life. All of the scriptures point to me. Read the scriptures with your eyes to Jesus. That's it. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's his work that is central to salvation. Then this next section, it says, the light in you. Now, I was thinking... Um, Sometimes, like before the service, I come in here and play hide-and-seek with, um, with Chris's kids, with Piper and, and Cyrus. And, um, and they're very talented hide-and-go-seek players. In fact, uh, we've played in their minivan while driving down the road before. And uh, I, I'm just not at that level yet. I don't, I, I just, I'll be there one day. But here's how they play hide-and-go-seek sometimes, even in here. It's, uh, you know, Cyrus will come up to me, and, and he'll say, you know, Michael, uh, you go hide, and I'll count. And so I'll go hide somewhere, or he'll go hide. But here's how Cyrus likes to hide, is sometimes he'll just get in one of these chairs and just close his eyes, right? And if he can't see you, you can't see him. So you know how kids are. That's what Jesus is going to say in this next passage. He's like, you, you think you can hide this light, but you can't. He says, verse number 33, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Religious people would rather close their eyes. You see, the, the goal for this light, for this lamp, especially... 2,000 years ago, now we just walked into a room and turn a light switch on. But especially a couple thousand, even up to a couple hundred years ago, they would take a lamp, a light, and put it in the middle of the house. So it illuminated everything, every part of the house. That's what he's talking about right here in verse number 33. He says, but here's what you would rather do with me. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy and your whole body is full of light, it's a very small organ, but it's incredibly important. Uh, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus is saying there, I am the light of the world. I am meant to be at the center of your lives. It is me who illuminates. That's why I am here. He's saying, don't put me, verse number 33, He's saying, don't do this. And here's, how, here's what we often do with Jesus. We often take this light that we're supposed to, that's supposed to be illuminating every part of our lives to this kingdom work, to how we're supposed to live. And we take that light and we put it in the cellar. We put it in the basement. For, look again there with me. No one does that. They don't put it in a the cellar. They don't put it under a basket. He says, 
what we do is we, we, we try to hide that light. We try to take away that conviction. We try to take away that spirit. We try to take away the finished work of Jesus because we want something else. Not only do we try to move that light, but then we're like kids. And then we try to close our eyes so the light can't even get into our bodies. That doesn't change the light, by the way. It just changes the looker on that light. For, for many, but th this is where this is for us, myself included, is that on Sunday mornings, we're like, yeah, light of the world, you step down into darkness. Like, this is fantastic. Yeah, Jesus, he's the light of the world. My question for us is this. How are we experiencing that light of the world during the week? How are we engaging with the one who spoke light into darkness? Are we spending time reading the word? Except for right here when Chris read us uh, these 25 verses earlier. Are we spending time in prayer? Are we spending time telling our lost neighbors about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Are we more concerned about tonight's football game and what we're going to eat than we are with the souls of our children? And I would ask you, what have you spent your time on even this past week? Because we can close our eyes to Jesus and we can close our eyes to eternity and we can become numb. But that does not change reality. Jesus should be at the center of our lives, illuminating the way that we spend our money, illuminating the way that our friendships look, illuminating the way that we spend our time, illuminating what we look at on that screen, illuminating our thoughts and how we think about others, every part of us. I would ask you this question this morning. We we try to put this basket over this light. Where in your life are you trying to avoid Jesus? Where in your life are you like here in verse number 33? Are you trying to put Jesus in the cellar of your heart? What are those areas that need to be illuminated? Does he have access to every part of who you are? Verse 37, then Jesus doubled down, doubles down a little bit. When Jesus was speaking of Pharisee, invites them over to the house. What we're going to see here in this passage, the third thing that religious folks do is they make rules for God. So in addition to avoiding God, religious, religious folks actually replace God. So verse 37, while Jesus was speaking of Pharisee, asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now you want to know why the, that little word V is not there, reclined at the table? I don't know, but I just got your attention. So, <laughs> verse 30, so we see here, we know that Jesus so far, uh, he's reclining with sinners. He's reclining with uh, prostitutes. He's hanging on the bar. We see here that also, not only does Jesus re recline at table with those kinds of folks, but Jesus also wanted to, at least he did, hang out with, with religious people. My, my, my thought on this, uh, if, if it were me, I would prefer probably not to hang out with religious people. It's, it's almost like they said, hey, Jesus, you want to come do a Bible study with us? And he was like, man, that's, that's almost like doing a, a Bible study with the IRS, you know? And they begin making rules and adding rules and then explaining the rules. And then right, right by, by the time you figure out those rules, they decide to change the rules. That, that's the kind of religious folks that he's talking about here. But Jesus still does go and engage with these Pharisees. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first watch his hands 
before dinner. Now, in a, in a post-COVID world, we understand this. But even pre-COVID, I had some OCD tendencies about washing my hands. But here's what I want us to see, is that this is not primarily about hygiene. The issue here is a matter of ritual. And this honestly symbolizes everything that's wrong with the Pharisees. They, they weren't concerned that Jesus' hands may have dirt on them. What they were concerned with is they had created a rule and added it to God's law and said, well, this is what we should be doing as part of God's law, but it was man-made. So I imagine Jesus did this. This is not in the Bible. Maybe it's in the Greek. I'm not going to tell you yes or no, but I imagine Jesus did this. So he walks in, he gets invited to this religious guy's house and he walks in and Jesus knows what's up. He knows. He walks in, he's sitting with a bunch of religious folks and they're like, he didn't wash his hands. I bet he's sitting there thinking, just wait. And so they've got some fried chicken, and they got some mac and cheese and some, you know, some mashed potatoes because they're just really good Baptists. And they have all this food. They have all this food spread out. And Jesus, who didn't wash his hands, everybody's already got this bug-eyed look in them. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to get some taters and put on my plate. And instead of using the spoon, you know what I'm going to do? Is I'm going to use my dirty, grimy hands. And I imagine Jesus reached over and he stuck his hands in those taters and he slopped it down on his plate. And he looked around like this. He's like, what's up now? And these Pharisees are like, oh my goodness. <laughs> They're freaking out. It'd be like if you went to the White House and you decided you got invited to the White House to have dinner and you walked in with board shorts and flip-flops on, right? And you walked in and you're like, hey, I'm here showing up. You're like, whoa, those aren't the rules of the White House. Uh, Secret security, uh, we got to get this man out. He's working. It's like that kind of thing. So the Secret Service here is ready to tase Jesus. They're, they're, they're freaking out because they're like, Jesus, you don't understand. This isn't about washing your hands. It's about our ritual. This is how we always do things. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what the Lord told us to do in the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, really? Let me see that chapter and verse because I am the Lord. And I think you should be asking me what we should be doing. But religious people, they close their eyes and they avoid the word of God and they replace the word of God with what they would prefer it to be. Notice what Jesus says. And the Lord said to him, verse 39, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. What does God see this morning? He sees the inside of you. He looks at your heart. He says, man, stop trying to look so good on the outside. What's happening on the inside of your heart? Verse 40, you fools. The Bible says, well, we're not supposed to call anybody fools unless they are one. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, true holiness begins on the inside and it exudes itself in the outside of your life. Because in verse 41, but give as alms to those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, you can't, don't just be generous on the outside, but we have a generous heart. And that transforms our heart of greed to generosity. A heart that wants to serve for its own grandeur and pleasure. Because that's, uh, that's what I really want to do. To a heart of service that is sacrificial. Any religious system that makes you holier than Jesus is not a good system. Any religious system 
that makes you holier than Jesus is wrong. These religious folks, they make rules for God. Then we see here, Jesus continues. So you're like, okay, couldn't get any worse. He's already, he's already kind of, uh, he's already offended his host you know, by saying these things. But notice what Jesus says next. We have these six woes. We see that religious people are under a curse of doom. So in the Old Testament, uh, a prophet would come and he would speak an oracle of doom. And he would use this word, woe. So we have six woes here. The first one, verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect the justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, religious people are committed to the wrong things. We see here a picture of a religious person who both has OCD and they have too much time on their hands because they're going through and saying, let me give a tenth of every single tiny herb that I have in my pantry all the while neglecting the needs of those around him. All the while they're doing that so they can look good for God, so they can earn God's favor. Now, most pastors would be happy with a church full of Pharisees who were giving 10% of everything that they had. That, that'd be fantastic. But can I tell you this morning, no matter how much money you give, if your heart is not one of generosity, if your heart is not behind it, then, then please stop. But I will also say this, when your heart has been transformed by the grace and the mercy and the generosity of our God, we cannot help but give sacrificially so that his kingdom can be expanded to this area. Amen? So we see here they're committed to the wrong things. We see, secondly, that religious people, they want to be recognized. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees. Secondly, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, they want to be recognized for their sacrifice, for their giving, for their gifts, for their time, for their name, for their fame. So many people are like, hey, man, I, just, I, want, to, I want to go pastor a church now. I want, to, I want to go lead. I want Give me some people to lead. I want to be in charge of something. Listen, man. We, we as disciples who fall under this one lordship of Jesus Christ, this is not about us. Uh, something could happen to me this week, and somebody else is going to be up here next week. Don't come to this church because I'm here, because somebody else is here. Don't think, oh, man, I can't do that. Don't jump into leadership just so you can have some amount of control or power or some kind of platform. We've been brought into the kingdom of God to expand his glory and his word. The third thing we see here is that religious folks are spiritually dead and they defile others. Verse 44, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. We get this from Numbers chapter 19, where if a Jew walks over a grave, they are then defiled and they have to go wash and they have to literally quarantine for seven days. Uh, we see in Numbers 19, it goes through all of that. What Jesus is saying here to this Pharisee, he's saying you're defiling these people around you. You're making them dirty because you're not leading them to me. You're leading them to do these other things. And without knowing, that, knowing it, you're leading them toward hypocrisy. Then we get to verse number 45, I think. Yeah, verse 45. This is where Karen speaks up, okay? Uh, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus, hold on one second. All of these woes, all of these oracles of doom, you're hurting our feelings. Now, Jesus, if you would simply tweet an apology, we are so kind that we will forgive you. That's what he's saying here. It's just wild. 
The irony of this, it's mind-boggling that this lawyer basically just steps in it. He says, Jesus, I think you're being really selfish and self-righteous in this moment. The lawyer doesn't even get what Jesus is saying. (laughs) It's wild. He accuses Jesus of what Jesus is telling him. So then Jesus and all of his deity and all of his humility and all of his care for the souls of these men and women, he says this, and woe to you lawyers also. It's so good. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You will not lift, the religious person will not lift a finger for someone else. Psalm chapter 119, if you look there through the first six verses of it, the law of the Lord is for the delight of our hearts. It's not to weigh us down so that we can feel miserable. It's to bring joy. It's a source of life for us, friends. The fifth woe in verse 47. Woe to you, build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. In other words, he, he goes here and he says, you honor these prophets here, but your ancestors are the ones who killed them. Religious folks are fruit that doesn't fall far from the tree. Jesus is saying, yeah, you say these prophets that were speaking the truth. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we love the prophets. But in reality, if they were still here today, you would still murder them. And we know that because Jesus was the prophet, capital P, prophet, who is proclaiming truth to the world. And what did they do with Jesus, the sinless son of God? They even killed him. He says here in verse 50, he says, uh, from the foundation of the world, this blood of the prophets may be charged against this generation. Notice what he says then. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You know, why does he bring up Abel and Zechariah here? Because in the Old Testament scriptures, we call it the Old Testament. Before we called it the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew uh, Bible was called the Tanakh. It began with, we have Abel at the beginning in Genesis, but it actually finished with 2 Chronicles. And they had a lot of those minor prophets into one book, and we separated them out. Still the word of God, they had them organized slightly differently. But the very first person who died was Abel at the hands of Cain. The very last person who died was Zechariah. And he's saying, for generations, for generations, it is this blood that was shed. People came to speak love and to speak life. And their blood was shed all throughout your scriptures. And he's saying, you're doing the exact same thing. The sixth woe, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Religious folks are a roadblock instead of a pathway to the kingdom of God. I would imagine, and you can look at James chapter 2, it said there's, there's, a, there's a higher level of accountability placed on those who lead and those who teach in the church. And I think these types of folks who put an extra burden on people who are seeking the kingdom of God, they are going to be sent to the hottest place of hell. My plea this morning is that I would not be leading you there. Our pastors, man, we work so hard. We want to lead you to the throne of grace, to the cross of Jesus Christ, and to make much of him. I had a teacher in high school 
I'm not going to say his name in case he ever comes across this because he still might live in the area. But uh, he was also the baseball coach. Uh, and maybe you had a teacher like this in high school. Uh, like he was, he, really, he was really motivated to teach history to us when someone in administration was walking down the hall. You know what I'm talking about? Otherwise, all he was thinking about was baseball and the playoffs. And what, what is, uh, which I didn't really mind at the time. But, but here's what's wild is that that history teacher he did not give me a love for history. It seemed like a burden to him. Therefore, history was a burden to me. Jesus is saying here, do not be a roadblock. Do not make the law of God a burden. Do not make the kingdom of God a burden that we just don't want to be under. Man, I hate the law of God. I hate the word of God. I hate being a Christian. I hate following Jesus. I don't want any part of the kingdom. He says, woe to you. Lastly, Jesus surely knew what this would cost him. What was crazy to me is that Jesus still went to the cross even for the most religious person. Even for the most religious person. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. These religious folks didn't get it. They didn't understand the presence of Jesus there with them. Jesus had to have known this. He said the truth. He spoke it in love. He spoke it in power. He took these folks and he spiritually stripped them naked and said, you have no other foot to stand on. Your religion cannot save you. And these religious folks doubled down on their guilt. That's the saddest part of this. I would plead with us this morning. When, when we are stripped and when it's like, what you think is really good, what you think is going to earn you favor with God, Jesus is saying, don't hold on to those things. Be stripped naked and then you'll be clothed in his righteousness. Don't run from him. Run to him instead. We know here the religious folks, they had not learned their lesson because in a few chapters we're going to see that this plot begins to take shape and they did literally go physically kill Jesus. Here, here are five truths I want us to walk away from, uh, walk, what, what I want us to walk away with this morning. And I'll go through these quickly. If you want to take a picture of the screen, that's fine. M my goal in this is that one of these would hit home especially for you. Maybe one or two of these is like, yeah, I need to hold on to that to chew on that, to mull that over uh, in my family, with my life group. The first one is this, and I think we saw this especially in the first three or four verses of this pas passage, is that only Christ can satisfy your deepest longings. Only Christ can satisfy your deepest longings. If I were to say, uh, fill in the blank, if I only had blank, then my life would be complete. If I only had blank, then my life would be complete. And this is where I think for us, we've become Pharisees in 2022, especially here in this church. I think this is where this hits home for us because we're going to be really quick to defend our idols, to defend our time, to defend what we watch, to defend our sports, to defend our sleep, to defend our privacy, to defend our rights, to defend our, to defend our nationalism to defend our selfishness, our materialism. 
But friends, we have become numb to the things of eternity because we are not finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ and him alone. And he is the one who satisfies. So run to him. Don't look somewhere else. Don't be looking for the sign of Jonah. Secondly, without Jesus at the center, life will remain restless. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the light of the world. Put me at the center of the room. Put me at the center of your life. And without Jesus at the center of our lives, we'll remain restless. You see, everybody has a center. There's some center of your life. The, the problem is, whatever is at the center of your life, unless it is Jesus, it cannot maintain what you are asking of it eventually it is going to break. Whether it's your job, your wife, your kids, your success, your resources, your intellect, your look, whatever it is, it's going to let you down because it was not created to sustain you. It was not created to satisfy you. You're asking too much of it. And what's crazy is, when the center of your life eventually breaks down, you run to God and ask him to bolster that back up, right? If you do have a prayer life, listen to your prayers. What are you praying for? That God would bless your idols. Amen? I'm talking about other churches, not ours. But we're asking God to bless our idols rather than repenting of those things and putting Christ at the center of our lives. He alone can satisfy us. And here's the beautiful thing, friends. When something else is at the center of our lives, I struggle with this so much. I talked to my wife about this several times in the past couple of months. But I want her love and her affection and her approval so much. And I want y'all's too. I do. That, that's what drives me a lot of days. And if you don't provide that for me, guess what? I feel really bad because you haven't done your job. You're like, whoa, whoa, that's really too high of an expectation to put on me. Exactly. Exactly. I'm finding my satisfaction and fulfillment in something that cannot provide it. And by the way, if my wife or if all of y'all collectively fully gave me all of my su support and affirmation and love, it still would not be enough. It wouldn't be. So instead of me now going to you or going to my wife and using you for my own benefit and both of us losing, guess what? Now I run to Christ who has approved of me, who has given me his righteousness, who has given me his life, his death, his resurrection. And now I get to be poured out as a drink offering for y'all. You're going to be poured out as a drink offering for me, for this body, for the sake of those around us. Because our satisfaction, our fulfillment is not coming in from how you respond to one another, but it's coming from Jesus Christ and what he says about you. That's really good news. The third thing that we see here, we get to be holy because God approves of us, not so that he will. We get to be holy 
It's a joy, not an obligation. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. We get to, not out of fear. And some of you are like, man, yeah, but what about when it says, uh, you know, Jesus says, my, my burden is easy. My, my yoke is light. Spurgeon, I read this a while back. Spurgeon was speaking on this, and he said, yeah, the reason that the burden and the yoke feel easy and light is because it's a joy to get to do that. It's a joy to do that. We don't sound that we have to. Man, we get to. We get to sacrifice our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We get to lay down our arms for the sake of showing compassion to those around us. We get to. What a joy and an honor and a privilege. The fourth truth that I want us to walk away with this morning is that our capacity to love is the same as our capacity to be loved. Think about this for a moment. What is the Father saying about you? If you could just eavesdrop on a conversation that the Trinity is having about you this morning, what would they be saying about you? Would they be sitting around like, God, man, I wish she was doing more. I, w- I wish he was doing, God, I'm so disappointed. Is that what the Trinity is saying about you? I wish they would work harder. If they did a little bit more, then I would approve of them. What is the Father saying about someone else? What is the Father saying about your wife or your kids or your neighbors or somebody else here in this body? What is the Father's tone with you? What is the Father's tone with them? And how does the way that you speak to them differ from the way that the Father speaks to them. Here's what I mean. If we believe the Father is speaking love and grace and truth over you, you're going to receive that and then be poured out and fill someone else up with that. But if it's like, ah, I'm only getting a little bit of love from the Father, we've only got a little bit to give out. So I would plead with you this morning. You're like, how does that relate to my life this week? I want you to go and sit and spend time with the Father. Spend time in his word, understanding that he loves you. I was talking to somebody last week and, uh, or two weeks ago, and I, I thought, man, I, I want to be used, and I want to be a conduit of God's compassion. And what I came to realize, even in this conversation, is that before I can be a conduit of God's compassion, I have to understand God's compassion for me. And sometimes it's like, yeah, let me take God's compassion and just give that to somebody else. Let me just take his love and give it to somebody else. Let me just take his gr- truth. Let me take his mercy. Let me just take his grace and give that to somebody else. And, okay, here you go. Everybody got it? All right, good. And then I go over here and I'm just like, yeah, man, I'm glad I did that for God. Now let me run to these same people and see if I can find their affirmation. Instead of going to God and understanding his glory and his grace that has been poured out on me, And now I can share that with you in the same way that he has shared that with you. And so is our tone with folks, is our attitude toward folks, is it the same as the Father's tone and the attitude with people? Lastly, I would plead with you, come to the one who washes you clean with his blood. 
For some in this room, we, we came in this morning even before we read a call to worship or a time of confession or sang songs. We came in this morning and maybe this is you. Maybe you just felt really dirty or you felt broken or unclean or you felt anxious. There's two parts inside of you that are fighting. You felt overwhelmed. Can I tell you that the blood of Jesus washes you clean? And it's in him that you will find satisfaction. It's in him alone. Religious folks, we all see it, that the world is messed up. We all see that the world is messed up. Paul said in Philippians I think it's in chapter 3, he talks about how all of his religious systems, all of his religious acts, they all amounted to a steaming pile of feces. That's it. Everything good that we're trying to do, everything that we think is good that we're trying to pursue, it all amounts to a steaming pile. That's it. The, The things that we try to avoid. But consider your life. Are you actually trying to build a steaming pile? You're like, oh, well, mine's, not, mine's a different shade than his. At least it's not that, at least it's not, you know, at least it looks better than that person's. Or we say, man, something's messed up with the world. Like something's jacked up. Let's go to the one who redeems, to the one who brings life, to the one who heals, to the one who revives. Let's run into his kingdom. Let's spread the news about his kingdom. Let's live for his glory. We have become numb, church. We have become numb to the things of eternity because we do not believe that Jesus Christ satisfies. I think we want to build his kingdom. We want it to look good. We want it to look religious. We want it to look spiritual. We want to build his kingdom without having him as our king. 